series on uh, John chapter one, uh, the you know the, the told world of the Word became flesh and became one of us, and I have the privilege of uh, actually preaching on that that section today. Look, we believe in one God, who made the maker of heaven and earth and and everything that there is, and uh, and we believe that in the beginning. God created one man and one woman and that he created them to have fellowship with him. And, uh, and we look back with some wonder and delight and uh, try to imagine the relationship that was between Adam and Eve and God. You know, funnily enough, we, we get perhaps the best glimpse of it after they sinned when we're told that, that they heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. But just that verse just really conveys to me just how close and intimate the relationship was uh, with their maker. But the, of course by then they had, they had sinned and they were afraid of him. They were afraid of God. Um, and their punishment then was, as we know, was to be evicted from the garden to have to work for a living. Uh, for women, there would be pain in childbirth and most of all, the greatest punishment that was that we were going to die. And uh, we struggle to imagine, well, I do anyway, to imagine what it is that we have lost because we have lived for so long in this world where, where death is everywhere and where work is everywhere and... Uh, and the whole creation is groaning and just longing for the restoration because Adam and Eve were actually the only ones ever to experience that closeness to God. I mean, we get glimpses of it later on in Scripture with, with the, the great names of like uh, Noah and Abraham and David, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, but we get glimpses of a, of a relationship with God that is possible but those people are only known to us because they were exceptional it wasn't the, the normal thing most people struggled on with, with God held at a distance because the whole Old Testament system was designed to keep God at a distance from us it's very like the relationship we have with, with our Queen you know, Queen Elizabeth II she's She's our queen, the queen of Australia. But if you go to England and you knock on the door of Windsor Castle, I can tell you you're very unlikely to be admitted if you say, oh, you know, I want to go and visit my queen. It's that sort of relationship. The whole, the whole uh, Old Testament system was designed to keep God at a distance from his people. And so... God's people ever since have longed to see Eden restored where we can walk and talk again with God and live every day with him. But it is shrouded, it is kept from us. It is at a distance. We look, we're like a child separated from its mother who longs to be, to be returned. We, we survive, we get by, but we long to be reunited. You know, I think the Apostle John 
felt it, would have felt it even more keenly than us because he experienced God in the flesh walking with him. He, uh, he wrote, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. So John had to suffer the punishment of old age. Uh, his work, work is traditionally is believed that he died in the year 98 AD. So he must have been a, a, a fair old age. Um, you know, I'm only a, a youngster compared to what he was when he, when he died. Um, so he had, he had to, uh, unlike all the other apostles who all died fairly young under violent circumstances, John had to, had to go through this long, long age knowing what he had seen uh, but, and, and probably longing for his own death because he knew that then that that, that relationship would to some extent be, be restored. And he said, what, what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we'll be like him. We'll be like him for we shall see him as he is. How he must have longed for the, the days 50 years earlier when he, when he did walk and talk and, and, and eat with the living Lord Jesus, with God in the flesh, because that is what it was. Somehow the one who had created matter and, and then, he, then he spoke words to that matter and the matter could not resist him, the matter did not want to resist him, the matter formed itself into all the stuff that we see now, into stars and planets and galaxies and in, into the earth. And, and, uh, and then he spoke again and there were, there, there were plants and animals and, and, and insects and, and, and all the stuff that we see around us. And finally, he made us. Somehow, that one whose form that no one had ever seen that creative force, that, that God, became flesh, just like one of us. He emptied himself of all the godly majesty and, and safety and, uh, and comfort that he, that he possessed. He emptied all that out and he became an ordinary looking man. He looked like one of us. If you'd passed him in the street, you wouldn't have given him a second glance. In fact, Isaiah said that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was no film star. We're used to seeing attractive personalities who, who attract a big following. But in the end, they're no, they're no different to us. They make mistakes, they sin, they get sick and they die, just like us. But Jesus was different, not in, not in appearance, but in substance. There hadn't been anyone before him and there was never anyone after him who was anything like him. John wrote, we have seen his glory and the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Glory. Most dictionaries define glory as uh, something like this, that something that brings praise and honour and fame. And it gets tossed around a lot, we know, by football commentators. You know, this team is bound for glory. But that sort of glory is fleeting. A few years at best. Who can tell me who won the BFL Grand Final in 1954? I mean, it, 
if you can tell me, you should be ashamed of yourself <laughs> for filling up your brain with such stuff. But Jesus did things that, that no one else, else has ever done and, and, and no one can do them. You know, when he, when he changed the, the huge barrels of water into wine at Cana in Galilee, his first miracle that's recorded in John's Gospel, John tells us that that was when they saw God's glory. He is the only son from the Father. He's not one of many sons from the Father. He is the only son from the Father and he shares the Father's glory. And yet he took on flesh, the Son of God, and existed without beginning, without end, outside of time, forever. He has always been, he always will be. He knew nothing of death. Imagine that, he came from a place where death was unknown. And yet death dominates our life. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry out? All men are like grass and all their glory like the flowers of the field. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40. Man that is born is born of woman is, has but a short time to live in, is full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away like a fleeting shallow, shadow he does not endure. That's from Job. In the midst of life, we're in death. That's from the Anglican funeral service. I've been to so many funerals, I know these things. But Jesus knew none of that. And yet, he chose to put that aside and jump into this world of sin and corruption and death. It was all lost for him and all gain for us. And that brings us to grace, the grace of God, the undeserved free gift of God. Um, just as the Apostle Paul looked at, put it like this, just as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life. So just as sin reigned in death, sin and death, they go together, they're like, like hold each other's hand. So grace might reign through righteousness and eternal life. So grace, righteousness, eternal life, they go together. It's like Rach was saying before about light and darkness. You know, darkness is an entirely negative thing, isn't it? Where light shines onto darkness, the darkness disappears. Whereas you can't shine darkness onto light and expect it to go away. It won't. There is no such thing. Light is all positive. Darkness is, is all negative. Light drives out darkness. And so it is with grace, which brings eternal life and righteousness. The grace of God. It seems to me, though, that the default position of all human hearts is ungrace. It's anti-grace. It's, 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 not, it's not grace. We, we feel like we must be good enough to make God take pity on us and forgive us. You know, I reckon I've been well taught about grace by God himself. But I still find myself slipping back into doubting God. You know, I... 
my sinfulness, Lord. How, at the last, surely you'll reject me. I'm not good enough. I was reading uh, in the CMS magazine, actually, about Peter and Terry Blouse, who are friends of Francis, in Argentina, missionaries in Argentina. And Terry was saying how she was running a Bible study with four girls, four university students. And two of them were Catholic and two of them were Protestant. And uh, they were looking at the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And you know the story that a rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, obey them and, and you'll live. And the man says, yes, but what else must I do? And Jesus said, well, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And at that, the young man turned away sad because he had great possessions. Now, Terry said to the young, to these uh, university students, well, how do you feel after we study that, that passage? And the two Catholic girls both responded that, that they would go away sad and mourning because they could never live up to Jesus' standard. And then she asked the two Protestant girls and she was quite dismayed that they gave pretty much exactly the same answer. And actually when I read it I wondered, well what would I have said? Because I think our default position is always to fall back on, on works, not grace. Of course we can't live up to Jesus' standard. We can't, we can't read this story of, of the young man coming to Jesus as if it's a story by itself. It's not. It's in the Bible. It's in, it's in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's, it's building up. The whole, the whole of the Gospel is built up, the idea that we are, we, there, we, are, we are in a hopeless position. We cannot live up to God's standards. His standards are too high and that if we could live up to God's standards, well then Jesus would not have had to die on the cross. But the gospel is arranged so to, to show us that we cannot possibly live up to this standard and therefore Jesus dies on the cross. He dies in our place. And that is why, that is why when we come to our death, we should be confident. Not because we think, oh, well, yeah, I have been pretty good. I, that won't work. It's because Jesus died for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Grace and truth. Jesus defines truth also. I mean, Jesus is the definition of grace. His death on the cross shows us that. He's also the definition of truth. But we are like Pontius Pilate when he... He said to Jesus, well, what is, what is truth in a, in a sort of a sceptical way when the truth was standing right there in front of him but he couldn't see it. I've been there. I was blind but now I see. John the Baptist, he saw at least partly. He said the one who, 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 who came after me was before me. He, I mean, he, he ranks above me because he was before me. So Jesus is, is full of grace and truth. He's not 
He's not the possessor of some grace and some truth. He is full of grace and truth. He is grace and truth. And, and all grace and truth comes from him. And from that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, as the ESV puts it. Not, not some grace, not even, not even lots of grace, but grace upon grace. You know, I, um, we, I spoke earlier about when we roll up, when we cross the Jordan, when we, we come to die, will we be confident? Um, I got a little story that I want to tell you because, it, because I, don't, I didn't know. How can we know that? How, how can we know if we'll be confident unless we're about to die? But actually, I, I had a thing happen to me a few years ago that, that, that persuaded me that of the partly of the truth of this, <coughs> I I uh, upended a sixty-liter uh, empty drum out, out behind our sheds one day, and not realising that it had a swarm of bees in it, and uh, and those bees, as you probably know, don't take kindly to that sort of thing, and I I tipped it up and was surrounded by this swarm, and I, my immediate reaction was to run, as you would, so I ran. And I ran and I ran and I ran a long way trying to outrun. It was like one of those cartoons, you know, the bloke running with a swarm of bees sort of following 10 feet behind him. Uh, and then I thought, I, I think I've heard, read somewhere that bees don't like dark places. So I could see our raised barn, which is a reasonably dark sort of closed-in shed, and it, it's raised up about that, it's about that high off the ground. It was made to be, uh, you know, the height of a, a wagon in the early days. I ran flat out at it and cleared it in one jump into it, ran in and hit in the back corner of the shed. And I thought, I was absolutely puffing and panting. I didn't, you know. And I thought, I think I've got away with this. No, I don't think they've followed me in here. And I was just starting to relax a little bit and one bee flew in and stung me on the ear. The sod. And, and straight away, my tongue started to swell up. I'm not allergic, I've never been allergic to bees. But I think it was because I'd been running so much, my heart was beating so fast, and, and my tongue started to swell up, and it got really so I was really struggling to breathe. And, and I thought, I could actually die here. Uh, and there wasn't a lot I could do about it. And I said, but then I, I thought, well, actually, I'm not really worried. This is good. So I'm just telling you that because I'm just saying it does work. If you've trusted in Jesus, at that moment, at that hour, at our hour of death, it does work. I mean, I didn't die, obviously. You know. <laughs> I will. So, not some grace, not not even lots of grace, but Jesus is full of grace. There's grace upon grace. It's like going back to the bee sting thing. You know, that bee sting cake you can buy it in the shop. It's a, it's cream upon cream. Yeah, it's a trivial example, but it's that, you know, God's grace is like the bee sting cake. It's lots of it. <laughs> but we, we must emphasise grace in everything we do because the world wants to hear the law. They want to hear works. I don't know why it is. You'd think grace would be the most attractive proposition that anyone could ever hear, and yet people don't want to hear it. They want to hear the law. We need to preach it, absorb it, live as if uh, as a grace-receiving people, not wandering around this world as if we're, we're still under condemnation. 
Sure, there are things God wants us to do. There's a way he wants us to live. But we must not lose sight of grace. Because of his grace, our future is not in doubt. The law was given through Moses as a sign of grace, a sign of God's grace. And remember that Israel was saved out of Egypt before the law was given. So there was, it wasn't because they were more righteous or better or good at obeying the law than anyone else. It was God's grace. But Israel's history shows us just how prone people are to depending on the law and not on grace. And if we look at Islam, Muhammad lived among Christians and Jews and, and, and he copied what he thought they believed. You must obey the law, do more good things than bad things and then you might get enough credit with God. I bet, I bet if we took a survey of Australia today that, that that would be the dominant view. That most people would say, if you ask them, how do you get into heaven? I think most people would say, well, you've just got to be good enough. And sadly, the idea is all too common, even in, in Protestant churches. I mean, we want to please God, and that's good. But it just so easily changes into, oh dear, I, you know, I'm not very good. God would never accept me. Here's a great verse. If you want a memory verse, remember this one. And yet it's not that well known. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. It's not the one who commends himself. So it doesn't matter what we think of ourselves, whether good or bad. It's what God thinks of you. And God thinks of you in the light of Jesus. If God has chosen you from before creation to believe in him, then who can be against you? Stop living in fear of condemnation and live in the joy of deliverance. This is what God told Jeremiah. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus still walks among his church. He dwells among us, his people. But the whole creation is groaning. Like a woman in childbirth waiting for the glorious, great, good thing that Jesus is coming back to take us to himself. Amen.